Amen. Thanks, Debs. Good to be here. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the service from me as well. Um, if you're at home at the moment, I can imagine if, you're, if, you, if your home is kind of like mine, some of you still in pajamas, got a cup of coffee next to you, and that's just awesome. I just wish we could find the preacher's equivalent of that. Maybe next time I'll be preaching in pajamas with a cup of coffee next to me. But God bless, however you are, wherever you are, whether it's at home or I don't know, in a hotel somewhere, wherever you're watching with friends, with family, may all of us really just long to hear what God has to say to us. May our hearts be open to receive what God is saying. What can you tell about someone based purely on their profile pic? Um, You know, WhatsApp and Facebook have these pictures that are attached to the Facebook. What can you tell about them based purely on that photograph? Well, apparently a fair amount. That's according to a group of researchers who have investigated this link between people's profile pictures and their personality traits. According to the study, social media users can be grouped into one of five big model personality traits. I don't know what those five are, but apparently you can tell what model or what trait they, they, they are strong in. For instance, ex- excuse me, extroverts are more likely to have a profile picture with several faces in it. They're also likely to portray a younger image, either through the use of a picture from years ago or them posting themselves next to younger people. I don't know, I've got to confess, it doesn't sound like a very precise science to me. But the purpose of a profile is to tell people a little bit about yourself, isn't it? It's just almost a brief overview, an introduction of yourself, normally just some of the highlights of our lives. Well, Facebook can give you access to quite a lot through the profile that you supply to them. They go just beyond just a photograph. I took a completely random name of someone, as random as the algorithms of Facebook allow us to be, I took a completely random name of someone to see what I could find out about this person. Turns out it was quite a lot. We're able to go way beyond just a photo pic. So the person's name that I came up with, I don't know how I arrived at this name, was a guy named Jason Collin. And it's all in public domain, so I'm not breaking any Poppy Act rules here. But for me, at least, it was a completely random name, Jason Collin. This is what I've learned learned about Jason Collin. Jason's parents had a, a 45th wedding anniversary um, earlier this year. He has been married, or he had a birthday in June. He married a lady named Lisa in 2005. He had a birth, a, a birth of his first child in 2014, but unfortunately he became part, him and his wife Lisa became part of one of those very small groups that go through the incredibly painful experience of losing a little baby. And at, at five weeks old, the little baby passed on. He had another baby, which interestingly was named Grace. Um, in the photos, I see he also has a son in the picture now. Maybe it just hasn't updated his profile to mention this third child. If you like, I could tell you the names of his uncles and aunts. Um, I could tell you that he supports Liverpool, Liverpool f- Football Club, that he enjoys Irish folk music, and so I could carry on and on. It's incredible how much you can actually tell about somebody based purely on their profile that they're willing to, to present to the world. I wonder sometimes if they'd be willing to say as much if they're just sitting across the table from me. But today I want to do a little bit of a weird task. 
I, I want to build a profile of a, a typical sin. All right? So it's not a person in the hot seat. It's an action that many of us are familiar with even on a daily basis. A profile of a sin. By doing a profile, I'm hoping to take us to take our knowledge about sin beyond just an entry-level kind of basic knowledge that I guess everyone has about this issue. I mean, think I think all of us intuitively, all of us have this gut feel that we, we reckon we know that we are borderline experts about sin. We certainly know enough about it that, you know, at least we should steer clear of it. You just need to look at the world around you. You look at marriages that are in the process of breaking up because someone made a stupid decision. And the pain that they're going through. You look at the impact of corruption in our country and how it's absolutely draining the core of, of, of the character of our country. You look at possibly your own selfishness and how it spins out into your life and, into, and how it impacts other people's lives. And you find yourself, and, and, and as you view these kind of things, you find it in yourself to wisely state that, you know, granted, sin is not a good thing. I want to suggest that there's a whole bunch that for our own good, we need to actually learn about sin. And so we're going to build a profile around this topic this morning, dragging a couple of, I think, pertinent points, and hopefully at the end of the day, be clearer in our understanding around this massive, even though it's an unpleasant topic. And most importantly, how we navigate this thing as believers in an epic God. That's our task for today. Let's study the subject as it slowly unfolds in King David's experience. As you know, we're going through some of David's other Goliaths. And this is how we're going to approach this topic. And first zone that I want to look at out of six zones around this topic is in terms of the character of a sinner. What does a sinner look like? What does a sinner look like? King David King David, the topic of our conversation, actually started as simply David. A humble shepherd boy, the youngest in the family, but it was this younger version of David that chose to stood up to stand up to a raging, murderous giant. Literally. Absolutely literally. A combination of his courage. His faith, his character, all incredible attributes in this youngster pushes him out of the general ranks of the army. And he says to the brute that is challenging the army, I'll face up to you. And the list of character descriptions that can be derived from that simple act of David stepping forward is massive. I mean, here's a guy, obviously, that is incredibly courageous. A guy that is full of faithfulness to his God. A guy that is driven by huge, awesome convictions. A guy of integrity. Here's the bottom line, folk. Sinners look like this young David. Sinners look like you and me. Sinners look normal. Here's the bottom line truth. I used to own a fascinating book. Um, it's actually a, a really great book called Doing Life. I, it got wet. I don't know, some stage I had to toss it, but it was really a fascinating book. It was a book full of photos of men and women that are doing life in prison. And the thing is, none of us 
just having looked at their picks, would ever suspect that these people would be the people that we readily label as the worst kind of sinners. In fact, if you look around you on any given Sunday, at least if you're back here at church, know that those saintly looking people around you are sinners, nothing less. Just like those people in the book, we wouldn't be able to distinguish between the two. Guys that I've counseled that have committed adultery, that have viewed pornography on a regular basis, that have stolen money. Can I tell you that without fail, I've found them to be good people as well? Broken people, no doubt. Sinful people, no doubt. But on so many levels, really good people. People just like you and I. That's what sinners looks like. Moira, our communications officer and good friend and colleague, also put a great quote up on social media recently. Simply said this, said, spoke of sinners judging other sinners for sinning differently. A few words that make such a beautiful point. Sin is such a leveler. None of us dare step into the role of judge unless someone says, can I list the ugliness of your sin too? Be very careful of becoming the judge. So if that's what the character of a sinner looks like, looks completely not normal, looks like you and me, we go to the next zone, which is the temptation and the invite. And that's captured in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2 for David. This is how it, spe- how it reads. One evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. I'm assuming it was a bit of insomnia kicked in. It's kind of weird, but sometimes when I have disturbing dreams or when I can't sleep, I'll get up and go play a couple of hours of computer games at one in the morning. Bizarre. That's not what David had access to him. Um, So he went for a walk around on the roof of his palace. And then the moment arrives. From the roof, he, he saw a woman bathing. And that incredibly poignant statement next, the woman was very beautiful. Here's the moment, folk. It's a mega moment that has just landed in David's life. He didn't have an inkling, and none of us do when these moments arrive. He didn't have an inkling of how big this night was going to be as he stepped out of his bed. It's a defining moment for his character, for his future, for the nation's future, in so many moments, in so many ways, this moment was going to be the biggest moment of his life, at least the most significant. And so David is op- offered on the rooftop, David is offered an opportunity to step into the zone that is sinful. Notice that he hasn't sinned yet. That's critical. We need to understand it. At this point, it's just an opportunity. It's what we call a temptation. It's an an invite. Nothing wrong with the temptation, folk. Nothing wrong with the temptation. Jesus' definition, there's nothing wrong with a temptation or an invitation. To have an orientation towards sinning in a particular way is not sinful. It's a temptation. It is not yet sin itself. 
And so David has a choice set before him. Admire the beauty of a lady that he has just seen and then run as quickly as possible or linger and start to entertain thoughts and feelings and fantasies that have no place in the soul of someone that follows our holy God. As someone once said, the difference between admiring the beauty of a lady and entertaining adulterous thoughts is only about five seconds. David lingers longer. You know, I confess that if I was in a similar position as David, I, I honestly, honestly doubt that I would have walked away from that rooftop unscarred by my own sinful orientations. I mean, we all, all of us have a sin style that has more potential than other temptations to unhinge us in some way, some, shape or, some way, shape, or form. Even St. Paul feels this deeply, and he describes this struggle very, very well by saying, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I hate... I do. He has those zones that he battles with everything in him to not actually commit the sin. So whether it be lust for the physical form of someone or an ability to become incredibly angry very quickly or a willingness to gossip or a badly hidden pride or arrogance, a selfishness that shuts the poor out of our lives, all of us have something in us that is a very, very tough temptation to step away, away from. Best you know what yours is. The longer it stays hidden, the more danger and the more, more, more destruction it will wreak. On that night, on that rooftop, David fails and he takes, the next, takes us to the next part of our profile that we're building and he, and he commits a sin. And so David chooses to sin. He chooses to step over a line. Uh, the verse actually says this. It says 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 4 says, Then David sent messengers to her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Effectively, he chooses in this moment, so the temptation has come, and now he makes the choice. He chooses against everything that up to that point in his life was important to him. He chooses against those things. His faith, his calling as the king, his character, even those that he truly loves, he chooses against those things. It's in some senses an absolutely thoughtless moment. His compulsive nature that at times served him well. I think it was part of a compulsive nature that caused him to step forward against, against Goliath. But that compulsive nature now fails him and pushes him instead to send a text to that lady, inviting, possibly even requiring her to visit because he was the king after all. Now just watch the nature of sin and how it develops and goes from zone one to two. Bathsheba falls pregnant as a result of that moment. And obviously that's not the sin part. But in order to keep the news from her husband, a guy named Uriah, David effectively murders him. Uriah is an incredibly faithful soldier. He sends him to the front line of a battle. And then he gets the rest of the troops to withdraw their support from him. And obviously 
he gets killed in the mix. You see, folk, sin has a need and an ability to expand, to gain traction. Given some room in our lives, it will push on to second base and then third base and so on. And that's why we must never underestimate the seriousness of sin, no matter how small it looks. Because we never know what the next door will be that it knocks on. I think it's also critical to understand in this day and age that stepping over that line like David did is nothing less than sin. Sin is sin. We may be able to explain why David made that bad choice. It may have to do with being the youngest kid and being denied any love and dignity from his dad. And so he constantly had to prove his manhood through women and abusing women. Maybe that's the reason. It may have to do with the fact that his compulsive nature had lots to do with living in a society that taught you to make life-changing decisions very quickly and without thought. I mean, if a lion is chasing you down, you're not going to sit down and strategize and think through the options. You will need to act immediately. You just have to act. That's what he did here. It may have to do with the fact that, well, men are generally jerks around attractive women. However we explain that moment, whatever the backstage dynamics are that led him and set him up for that moment, it doesn't detract from the fact or change the fact that it was sin he committed. It's such an old antiquated word, that word sin. I don't actually know if it has any real meaning in people's hearts and minds nowadays. Back in Bible college days, I had to learn New Testament Greek. It was called Koine Greek, and the words for sin was the word hamartalos. Um, And the way I remember that word, because we always had to do word association to try to remember the different Greek vocabulary. The way I remember that word is that if you look carefully, you, you can almost see or hear the word harm in the word hamartalos. Okay, Hamartalos, harm, pretty similar you know, the R is in the wrong place, but that really helped me massively. For me, sin has always been that. Sin brings in an element of harm. It harms our walk with God because effectively sin is a step away from God. It harms character because it intentionally takes us away from our better judgment. It harms in the end everything that is dear to us, our friends, our family, our world, creation. The taint of sin wrecks lives. Sin harms the world. Sin harms creation. Folks, sin is not best handled when it is simply explained away. And so we go to the next zone, the zone of guilt. Nathan was a prophet at that time, and he does a very kind act, very courageous act of stepping up to the king and saying, David, what you did with Bathsheba and Uriah, it is deep sin, and he explains it very clearly. He says this to his face, and I think there's a lot of space, a lot of great conversations that we could have around this thing of actually calling out sin in people. Oh, it has to be done so carefully. But sometimes it can be a very, very gracious and effective moment. 
And so Nathan calls out the sin in David's life. And, and David goes into that next gray zone of churning. His guilt, his guilt is immense. Psalm 32 verse 3 and 4 describes very well and graphically, almost as graphic as possible in that day and age, he, he describes what that guilt felt like. Listen to what he says. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Look, this is the Goliath that I honestly believe David had to face up to. We're preaching in the sermon series about David's Goliaths. And guilt, I think, is honestly one of David's great, great Goliaths. I believe one of the massive challenges that tested David's character and his faith to the core was how he handled this guilt that came from his immense sin. What he did about this guilt. I mean, initially, if we look at that verse, he handles this guilt in silence. I mean, isn't that typical of us? Something in us tries to convince us that, that silence is the best treatment of guilt. Just keep quiet about it and hopefully it'll go away. Hopefully people won't recognize. Hopefully it won't have any real you know, impact on my soul. Even David, one of the wisest men to have ever lived, is convinced by that lie. But the silence, that verse also makes clear, isn't a silence of rest and peacefulness, the kind that we look for in the berg or at the beach or in the park. No, it's a silence full of groaning and anguish instead. Sin doesn't leave us happy in life. Sometimes we're even unable to put words to it, but there's this dis-ease about what we have done, a groaning somewhere in our soul, as if we've touched something evil. It took that moment. Um, I arrived at that moment the last time I ever gave one of my daughters a hiding. It was a horrible moment. I can't even remember which of the two daughters, but uh, I, I finished that moment, and I walked out, and I went to our, our lounge, and I sat there, and I had this horrible, horrible sense of something just gone very bad. Um, this, there, was, there was this groaning in me that said, this was not my right. My anger had stepped over lines that were never meant to be crossed. And I never gave my kids a hiding again after that moment. Just a groaning in me shouted very loudly about that moment. And so once the guilt has been experienced, David then steps into the next moment, which is absolutely critical in the building of this profile, the moment of confession. The next step you know, determines whether or not guilt is going to be an enemy or a friend to you. Because I can believe, I do believe it could be one or the other. I was chatting to a guy a couple of weeks ago who had chosen to have an affair with a lady. And I asked him whether or not he considered guilt to be a friend or an enemy because so much time is spent nowadays saying that we must get rid of guilt, you know, as quickly as possible. We need therapy if we feel guilty at all. Well, this guy barely blinked before saying that the guilt was a friend to him. Took him by the hand, gave him the strength and motivated him onto a journey back to his God. Back to his wife 
back to a life that can honestly be described as blessed. Navigate this step of confession well, and guilt achieves its God-intended goal. Avoid the negatives that guilt can create in you. When we don't handle guilt well, guilt well, it will wreak havoc. It will either cause a hard and increasingly calloused heart, where we'll become stubborn sinners, or you'll find other ways to shut the voice of guilt down and we start justifying stuff that should never be justified in our lives. Or the guilt just starts to snowball and expand and grows and fills out until you, it leaves you hating yourselves even more. And the accuser, one of the biblical names of Satan, will have a field day with your well-being as he shoves that sin again and again relentlessly into your face as he draws your heart and soul down. Please understand, confession is the first step on the path back from the ugliness and the horror and the destruction of sin. Confession is the first step on the way back. I turn towards God. I come clean with Him. I want to let you into a small fantasy of my own that I've shared often on staff. I have for a while now wished to have a confessional in our church. You know, you've seen it in the movies. If you've never had a Catholic background, as, as I haven't, you've seen those guys. They go to the confessional and sit with the priest and they say, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. And he says, when last was your last confession? I think that's how it goes down. I've longed to have one of those in our church. And we step into that zone where we speak about confessing our sins one to another. That's that zone. Another verse that speaks about what is forgiven on earth shall be forgiven in heaven. That kind of zone. And the reason I long for this confessional to be in our church is because I long for our congregation and for Christians and followers of Christ to know how to confess their sins well. How to take this step well. Listen to David as he confesses his sin. Listen what it sounds like when we do this well. Psalm 51 verse 3 onwards. David says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. I bet he whispered the next part. He says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and, and justified when you judge. Cleanse me with hyssop. That was a, a minty kind of herb that they used to clean and left a, a great smell. Cleanse me with hyssop. I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones, there's the words again, the bones, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. He has a man that is humble enough to recognize that he's blown it against his God. Hating the fact that his actions have turned him onto a path that leads further and further away from his father. And so instead, instead of hiding in guilty silence, he lays it all down in front of God. And humility and regret and a turning towards God, these are the precious things that move the heart of God, are almost omnipotent in their power with God. 
And so we finally arrive at the last zone, the zone of forgiveness. What a relief that our sins, our shortcomings, our brokenness, what a relief, what a, what a relief that we can be forgiven. She was one of England's best-known novelists, this lady. Secular humanist. Shortly before she died in 1988, Margarita Lasky said on television, what I envy most about your Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. We have a sense and a need for forgiveness. She knew this intuitively, but she had no one to turn to. Forgiveness is a massive part of the message that Jesus wants to us, us to spread. Forgiveness is at the heart of his life, his death, his resurrection. It enables forgiveness. Do you know that one of the first things Jesus said after his resurrection to the disciples as he appeared to them in that room, first time that he appeared after the resurrection, as he sent them out to change the world and to, and, to, and to start a mission, one of the things that he says, John 20, 23, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. Now whatever that verse means, Love to have that conversation. But whatever that verse means, can we at least agree that Jesus was passionate about people receiving forgiveness through his people? This was the first thing he said to his gathered disciples and sent them on a world-changing message, basically saying, spread forgiveness. Love and relief. And intimacy with God. This is the goal of forgiveness. And this is the life story Jesus told again and again and again. It was almost like a stuck record when he was here on earth, on earth with us. Love is always the goal. A reconnection with God. The issue isn't the ugliness of sin. The issue is the reconnection with God. It's the story of the prodigal son accepted by his dad when he expected ridicule and rejection. Instead, he found open arms. It's the story of that lady as she weeped over Jesus' feet and found acceptance and protection despite these bunch, of, these bunch of Pharisees judging her. It's the story of that other lady on the brink of being stoned by an angry mob, again finding a protector and forgiveness in Jesus. It's the story of a criminal dying on a cross next to Jesus as forgiveness and hope floods his soul in those last moments of life. It's a story that is told and retold at every communion service. It's why we do communion. Spread the blessings of forgiveness everywhere. Also, please be certain to receive the blessing of forgiveness too. Listen to David soaking himself in the warmth of his father's forgiveness. The picture comes to mind of us in one of those chilly, chilly days, maybe in the berg, and you climb into a piping hot bath, and the skin starts to pucker, you know, goose flesh kind of moment. You just got lie there in the warm bath, and you go, this is amazing. Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate. Gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. That's just the first line. You will not always accuse, 
Nor will he harbor his anger forever. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows we are formed from dust. Remember that we are dust. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. If David, an adulterer and a murderer, can pen the words that describe this kind of forgiveness, why would we ever suspect that our stuff is out of the reach of our God's grace and mercy? An attorney, after meditating on several scriptures, decided to cancel the debts of all his clients, which probably means it was an urban legend because that never happens. But he decided to cancel the debts of all his clients that had owed him money for more than six months. He drafted a letter explaining his decision and its biblical basis, and he sent 17 debt-canceling letters via certified mail, which is what happened a couple of decades ago. One by one, though, the letters were returned to the postal service, by the postal service, unsigned and undelivered. Perhaps a couple of people had moved away, but it wasn't very likely. 16 of the 17 letters came back to him because the clients refused to sign for and open the envelopes, fearing that this attorney was suing them for their debts. How profound. In a very real sense, we owe a debt for our sin, and God is absolutely willing to cancel, but too many people will not even open the letter that explains how. Maybe you enjoy or feel the need to stay submersed in your guilt. Well, today is the day that God says, confess your sins. and He will be faithful and just. He promised us to forgive your sins. I'm going to be in the chapel today between 12 and 1 o'clock just to see um, if anybody feels the need to confess something that may be happening in their lives, that may have happened many years ago in their lives. They just want to confess something to deal with it, to deal, do business with God. And they want somebody else in the room with them. I'm going to be in the chapel today between 12 and 1, feel free to come. And I'll be there to minister. Let's close in a word of prayer. Thank you for your forgiveness, Father. Thank you for your blessings. Oh God, teach us that more than hating the destruction of sin, May we come to the point of love, living, loving, right living instead. May we come to the point of loving love, kindness, generosity, and honesty, 
integrity and honor and purity and all those good things. May we love these things. May these things fill our lives with your heart and your will. And may guilt only play the role that you intended, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.